0: This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by Heretic Happy Hour, whose tagline is "Burning Questions, Not People." Join hosts Shonda Jaw, December Rose, Dr. Reverend Katie Valentine, Keith Giles, and myself, Matthew J. Distefano, for a happy hour filled with quality conversation, fine fellowship, and perhaps even a laugh or two. Unapologetically irreverent and crass, yet sometimes profound we make sure to pull no punches and leave no stones unturned as we discuss the Christian faith. But listener, beware. There will assuredly be some serious sacred cow tipping. If that sounds like your cup of tea, or bourbon if that's your thing, head on over to heretichappyhour.com to stay up to date with us, and be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix.
1: Your Majesty, Sir Richard has arrived home from his quest. Sir Richard, you've slayed the dragon, and for your boldness, a choice of fabulous rewards, exotic pelts, rare gems, or riches the likes of which you've never seen. With more than 10 million in prizes, and the best odds of winning $300, should you choose them, ultimate riches await thee. May thy boldness be rewarded with the new ultimate
2: riches scratcher from DC Lottery. Please play responsibly.
1: Hi, friends, I'm Tim Whitaker, and welcome to the New Evangelicals podcast. The New Evangelicals is an inclusive, Jesus-centered community that holds space for people marginalized by the evangelical church, advocates for accountability in the church, and helps you explore the Christian tradition beyond the basement of evangelical fundamentalism. This podcast is part of that work, so join us as we talk to people from all walks of life, lending their expertise and wisdom to us as we renegotiate our faith and find better paths forward.
0: friends, this is Noah from the New Evangelicals podcast. This is a special bonus episode that Tim recorded with Bradley Onishi from Straight White American Jesus, talking about the Asbury Revival, but from an academic and a historical perspective. In this conversation, they're joined by scholar of religion Matthew Taylor and scholar of history Leah Payne. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. This was a great episode. Enjoy the conversation. I'll see you soon. Welcome to a special episode of Straight White American Jesus and the New Evangelicals, Tim. you're here. Hi, I'm I here. know. And this is a <laughs> this is a crazy endeavor that we're doing. and we have <laughs> we have Straight White American Jesus and the New Evangelicals in the same room who knew they could get along. Uh, but uh, here they are. okay here we are. We're with uh, two other great folks who are Dr. Leah Payne. Hello, Leah.
3: Hello. Wonderful to be with you.
0: And uh, facing a snowstorm uh, in your part of the world, and so uh, thank you for braving various recording challenges to do that. And uh, Dr. Matt Taylor, who is in, is in, uh, I hope hiding from the paparazzi because of your your ongoing
1: fame. So and
2: <laughs> and it's unseasonably warm here in Baltimore. So you're welcome oh. to the rest of the country. Yeah,
1: yeah, same in New Jersey. It's it's un it's it's warm for this time of year. So well. Good uh, up, you
3: guys.
0: Um, we, we want to talk about the Asbury revival. I know that there's been a lot of chatter online. I think we've all kind of touched on it in our various social media posts and some of our episodes on our podcast, but, uh, seemed like a good chance to get everyone together and, and really just do some reflection. Um, especially with Matt and Leah, who, Really are uh, experts in uh, you know various aspects of uh, charismatic Christianity, and uh, in some sense um, can maybe help us uh, figure out what a revival is. It's interesting. I was talking about the Asbury revival, my wife, who's um, who grew up Catholic said i didn't know a revival could be just like organic i thought you had to like plan it and have like a really slick preacher and i didn't know you could just go to chapel and never leave like that's (laughs) you need to probably explain that to people because i i didn't know what you were talking about so um why don't we start here tim you actually i think of the four of us you're the only one who went so do you want to just tell us what you saw when you went there
1: yeah, sure. So yeah, I did go. Um, last Monday, I was thinking to myself, man, I wish I can go to this thing. And I thought, wait, this is my job. I can just go. So I did. I bought a plane ticket and I went. And my goal, just so the audience knows, was really to talk to students and faculty. I just want to kind of get like, how are they thinking about this? And because of our work, I was connected to a few students who were queer, which was really important for me because we think about like, okay, In, you know, speaking about like this particular school, you know, maybe groups that are not accepted, you know, on like the higher level as far as like Asbury's actual non-affirming statement, but yet attend this school, how are they being treated during a revival that is happening? Uh, so I spoke to several um, queer students um, on both the Asbury university side and also across the street, there's Asbury seminary. They are connected, but not like officially, but they do talk to each other. Um, and then I also spoke to um, an alumni uh, who was also queer, who was also there. And, you know, just so, um, you know, Lee, I'm not sure if you and I have engaged a whole lot, so I- I'm I forgive me if, if we have, and I don't know that, but I um, I'm skeptical of things like this these days. I kind of grew up where I, was part of more Assemblies of God, um, you know, worship spaces as a professional drummer. So I'm a little leery because I've, I've been on the on the stage, you know, um, making the Holy Spirit fall, so to speak. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I still believe in some form of the divine. I believe that God can work in, in ways that are beyond. And I wanted to go there and let the students kind of shape how I spoke about this thing, because it's happening to them. And I, I didn't want to invade someone's sacred space. And start giving my opinion, uh, cause I've done that before and we call that, I call that fundamentalism. So yeah, essentially, um, I was, it was complex. That's the word I use a lot. It's complicated, a lot of layers, but th- there are two big themes I'll draw out just from, for this conversation. There's this idea of students, including queer ones telling me, yeah, something happened here. Like I don't even know what to make of this. Um, one student said, I haven't talked to God in like two years. And then, like last night, I'm in the chapel, and I, I had this moment where I'm like, I just feel connected again. And I, and this is again a, a queer student who's who's very much out at, at the university. And I said, okay, that's interesting. They go, yeah, it is interesting. So there's that layer of like students and faculty saying, yes, yeah, something kind of special happened in this moment, and and the faculty, to their credit, really wanted to protect that as this event became viral and the word revival got picked up, you know, broadly speaking, on TikTok and Instagram. There was a different kind of group that started descending on Asbury that made the students and faculty one of the students used the word uh zoo animals. They felt like they were just on display, uh, to be looked at and gawked at. And then, of course, there was a concern of it being co-opted really more by like the more charismatic revivalist types. There were some more reform people there, but they were there more to kind of critique it and say if it's God or not. But the more Revivalist types in, our, in the charismatic spaces, they kind of descended like, oh, God's here, the Spirit's here, and kind of made it something that I don't think the faculty or students ever had in their minds to make it. So there there are those two kind of competing dynamics that left me leaving the next day with the feeling of complicated. This is a complicated situation we have on our hands.
0: Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's great. I appreciate that kind of, uh, you know, reporting and, and the, the the refusal to reduce it to, to one thing or another. Uh, Leah, I feel like you were one of the first people I saw on Twitter as always, you had, uh, Images ready to share. So I don't know where you have what kind of uh, three or four terabytes of storage you have at home, because you <laughs> seem to have images and videos to share anytime anything happens in American Christianity. You you showed us a, a picture from 1970 in Asbury Revival. Mm. Uh, there have been revivals going back a century at uh, Asbury. Um, from what you've seen, do these does this current revival with students staying in chapel for over a hundred hours, people coming in from other states? Does this line up with other uh, things that have happened at Asbury in the past or what caught your eye uh, about this one uh, in 2023?
3: Oh, that's such a great question. And yes, you know, one of the reasons why I was so quick on that was because I'm writing about a book about contemporary Christian music and Asbury and Wilmore, Kentucky was the site of um, a very famous Christian music festival that was really a big part of establishing contemporary Christian music. So it's not that I was super fast. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd be normally that fast, but when I saw that it was Asbury, I got kind of excited, especially because music and singing was such a big part of this, uh, this particular meeting. A lot of people have noted that unlike other uh, forms of, of revivalism, there wasn't a big role for the preacher. A lot of times, you know, if you, if you think about revival, um the american practice at least of revivalism and i i think of it as a practice i'm not interested in whether or not it's a real mystical event but i kind of like to study it historically um and i mean i might be personally interested but like as a as a historian i like to think of it as a practice so it's like what are the ingredients that you need for a revival meeting typically and this is just a really well well-established form of American Protestantism, you would you would have um, song singing, you'd have preaching, and then you would have emotive, um, what some historians have called scandalous practices. So, lots of tears, lifting your hands, dancing, and then, you know, if you get, um, like, if you were raised in the Assemblies of God, then you get tongue speaking, divine healing, prophetic words. So, you know, there's, like, lots of different stages and um, but one of the things that the thing that really caught my eye in addition to the the um this the idea that it was connected to music was um that it it looked so similar to the type of uh, revival meetings that you would see at an asbury um type place. And by that, I mean that it it bore a strong resemblance to holiness and Wesleyan um styles of revival. i and you know, I'd be interested to hear Matt weigh in on this, but I was looking for very charismatic practices and I didn't see a lot. And that was interesting to me. Um, and so that was initially when I, I said, I, I, initially tweeted about it and in a random turn of events, and I don't even know how Fox news picked up on the tweet. Um, and it, and so I was like, what are these comments in my feed? I had no idea. Um, but people got really into it from, from that news source maybe, but they were saying stuff about, I, I said Methodists know how to revive because it, it looked like an older style of revivalism than what you usually see um, that, uh, than what has been popular kind of in the, the, uh, um like current american imagination um but matt were you surprised by that too
2: yeah i was i was very surprised by that in fact um because i was watching um my my beat is the the nar independent charismatic folks and so i was watching how they were calibrating kind of fixating on this revival. I mean, for them, the word revival is just—it's—it's it's catnip, right? It's—it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's magnetic, and so they all start focusing on it. And the one who really caught my attention was actually Todd Bentley, mm-hmm. who decided to go. Um, and maybe I can do a little storytelling about Todd Bentley if that's okay. So the the last. Uh, at least as far as, but kind of national attention revival that I'm aware of. I mean, there've been all these little sparks that people have talked about it was about 15 years ago. And in this, in April of 2008, the, uh, a pastor who was actually a member of the international coalition of apostles that Peter Wagner, who founded the NAR was leading. So Steven Strader is in Lakeland, Florida and invites this guy, Todd Bentley to come to his church to lead a week long revival. And Todd Bentley very interesting character. I, I encourage people to Google him and look him up. Um, so Todd Bentley comes out of Canada, had uh, a very troubled youth, um, has kind of a biker gang vibe, um, and uh, has uh, had was involved in the juvenile correction system, uh, but has at, by this point in 2008 is an evangelist, and so he comes and he preaches at this church in Lakeland, Florida, and revival breaks out ostensibly. And so all these people are being healed. All these people are being um, converted. Um, God TV um, is this international uh, Christian, charismatic Christian television channel. They start carrying the revival live every night. Um, and so this this thing is just taking off and everyone's paying attention. Hundreds of thousands of people are watching it nightly. Um, and at that point, um, this is around May, all these stories start coming out about Todd Bentley. And even on stage, he is describing how he is healing people through kicking them in the face, through punching them in the stomach. Um, And I'm not joking. You can see the videos of him still. And all of this is kind of, again, being broadcast live. And so these group of apostles and prophets from the NAR start paying close attention. And eventually they organize. Uh, an apostolic uh, anointing ceremony for Todd Bentley. This is in late June of 2008. Peter Wagner, Chay On, Bill Johnson, Rick Joyner, all of these major figures are all there to do this apostolic anointing ceremony over Todd Bentley. He, of course, falls on the ground, and it's, it's, it's a big thing, all on live TV. And a couple of weeks later, ABC's Frontline um, has this expose on Todd Bentley that he has uh, cannot come up with any names of anyone who's actually been healed in this thing. The, it eventually comes out that he's been drinking um, and has been drunk on stage a number of times uh, as he's been leading these nightly meetings. He winds up leaving his wife for an intern who's also his nanny and the whole thing just descends into chaos from there. Um so that was really the last of these big revivals. So seeing Todd Bentley this delivering himself as kind of the savior to the the revival and then I heard actually from some people who were there that they he gets there, he wants to do his thing and they sit him in a pew. Yep. Right? So there was there was there's definitely an intentionality behind these Asbury folks saying like we know we know where this could go, and they didn't want to let it go there.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that was confirmed through many stories I heard, and also I know uh, the day I got there was the day after Greg Locke went, and same thing with Greg. They pretty much said you can be in the pew, but like that's pretty much it. And I also know that they, I don't have a name. They didn't give me the name, but um, one of the students said that a very high profile worship artist.
3: Oh yeah, it was Carrie Job. Carrie Job. Job. I- Yeah. There's that. Yeah. Yeah. Carrie Job, I thought, um, you know, one of the, I think there's a really interesting conversation there to be had about professional revivalists. And that seems so, so like a foreign concept maybe to a lot of folks, but, um, you know, I, I like to think of revival, revivalists revive, like other groups do other forms of spiritual formation or community building. So like, you know, stations of the cross during Lent or something like that. You know, this is just what they do, and so of course, you know, there are professional versions of that. And I was really interested in and a little bit surprised at how effectively they were kept from the center stage because they definitely gave it their all. There's a, I posted a video of Carrie Jobe, fil- someone filming yep. Carrie Job driving by. <laughs> yeah. You know, driving around the neighborhood, and I, I was, I thought for sure. You know, she, I think she's pretty held with, with, with probably pretty high regard in these circles. So it was kind of stunning that they made the choice to keep her off the stage.
1: I mean, half the songs that, that they were singing were pretty much choruses from that CCM world that you know you're, I'm sure, covering in your book. And I will say, I mean, I mean this sincerely. Everyone I talked to, everyone without without fail. Could not speak more highly of the faculty from doing their absolute best to protect the students, including a story of someone trying to pray the gay away, and they stopped it and said, "Absolutely not." So again, I mean, listen, no, no one's perfect, no institution's perfect. Asbury has its own set of problems, but I was really happy to see that that the faculty really were were proving that when they said we didn't expect this, we're not here for this, you know, show spectacle, they really put their money where their mouth was and protect and protected the students.
2: There's actually an interesting piece um, in Christianity Today by uh, Daniel Silliman, uh, where he went on the ground and started interviewing some of the faculty and folks and realizing there was a storage closet off stage where they were gathering leaders from the university and saying, hold on, what's going on here? How do we handle this? And so they're very strategic about what they were doing. They're checking in constantly throughout this thing. Suddenly people start showing up with shofars, again, one of these very kind of charismatic Pentecostal things, and they're like... (laughs) <laughs> what do we do with people with shofars? Since they come up with a policy about not allowing shofars to be blown in the room, so I think there, there, yeah, there was a lot of that intentionality, a lot of curating going on about this yes. revival.
0: Let, yeah. Can I, can I just jump in here for the audience and and ask uh, Leah, maybe, if, if uh, or Matt, what you know, whoever wants to take the first crack at? Um, all right, if I don't know what a Wesleyan holiness tradition is, what is that? And then what is a revival look like in that tradition rather than in, you know, maybe somebody listened to charismatic revival fury or someone's familiar with a Pentecostal setting and certainly shofars and flags and all kinds of other instruments and symbols are allowed in those places. We have a situation where Asbury is like, nope, no shofar. So that's like a, revival policy, right? Like hey, we're going to let the holy yeah. spirit do its work just not through this ram's horn. Um like Le- like Leah, how does that line up with the holiness what is a holiness yeah. wesleyan and how does this all work?
3: You yeah. know, so if if I were making a, a family tree like those old-timey family trees, I would put the wesleyan holiness movement as the the earlier generation um that was very influential over the pentecostal and charismatic movement. Um, and the Wesleyan holiness tradition comes out of, um, in part, out of Methodism. Um, and it, I, I like to, I, I teach it in class as a um, an issue of time. So, if you're familiar with Methodism um, or Wesleyan teaching, you know that there's this idea that you will be made holy eventually it, al- along the course of your life. And it happens through doing spiritual practices, through confession, through good works, through all these things. And the work, and, and the idea is that the Holy Spirit is working in the life of the believer over time to make them perfect, like God is perfect, to use a, a scriptural um. Passage. And what the holiness movement does is shorten the time of perfection and make it happen during a moment known as an altar call, which is where people are called. And most people who are familiar with American Christianity are familiar with this. Billy Graham was putting this all over TV, where it usually a a preacher will call people forward. And when they are down there in, in front of everyone, they are made holy quickly. Now there's, there's a long history and debate about when that happens and how long it takes and all that kind of stuff. But I would say that what makes the Wesleyan holiness tradition distinct is this idea that during, you know, this, this moment, this mystical moment, you are cleansed and, and made like God, um, made holy. And and in fact, if you see footage from, depending on the angle, the camera angle, because I loved how y'all talked about like different people were filming it you might've seen the, the front of the um, sanctuary says, holy as unto the Lord. That's a classic holiness slogan. And so they were very influential over the charismatic tradition, but they they predated that in the charismatics and Pentecostals and then charismatics add, I think like spiritual fireworks to it. So, <laughs> so, you know, it's not holy, it's how do you demonstrate that you you are demonstrating with these wonder working things like speaking in tongues, divine healing, stuff like that. But, um, when I saw it, I thought it was fascinating because charismatic worship practices have taken over general, like garden variety, white evangelicalism. And I should say, at least from my perspective, I'd love to hear, you know, it it seemed like a white dominant space to me. Um, you know, there were other uh, folks there, but I was expecting, you know, maybe, um, like how charismatics have taken over a lot of worship spaces. I was expecting to see a little bit more like jumping up and down, you know, stuff like that. And it was, it was low key. And I was kind of thinking, I was wondering, you know, is that because it's at an institution that has really deep roots? Like, were they, what was that, you know, um, like shaping the space? But anyway, those are my initial thoughts. I'd love to hear from Matt
2: yeah, and just just to con- contrast that, right. so the the what you saw at Asbury, I, I would say is very much in that Wesleyan tradition, right? very, very much and about kind of repentance, about tr- personal transformation, about healing, especially about kind of psychological healing, right. Erica Ramirez, who's a scholar who works on this, has, has noted how a lot of the healing that is that, that that was people have talked about coming out of this Asbury experience was uh, kind of emotional trauma. Which very much kind of speaks to the moment that we're in, and that a lot of these Gen Zers are, who are participating are in. Um, but the to contrast that with what we're talking about is kind of the charismatic revival style, where you have shofars, where you have uh, enactment of spiritual warfare. Even the, that that video that was circulating around on Twitter about with the guy swinging the wild sword while speaking in tongues, right? That 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 is very much the vibe of the yeah. charismatic revival style. Um, People with flags, right? Kind of Pentecostal worship flags, those sorts of things. People with prophecy and prophets being welcomed up on stage. And then with that comes the whole slew of kind of celebrity revivalists, celebrity prophets, celebrity apostles who then want to show up. So, um, Tim, you mentioned uh, uh, with Greg Locke. Right, who is one of these kind of charismatic pastors? This is the guy who has said he's going to cast the witches out in front of his uh, congregation. And right, but he shows up, he's got millions of followers, and again, they park him in a pew. So I think there was. This, this, I I think the faculty was very conscious of that Wesleyan heritage. I'm not sure. I don't know how much the students were as, as, as dialed into that. But I think they really want the faculty really wanted to say, no, if this is going to happen in our institution, we're going to kind of control the boundaries a little bit.
1: I mean, one easy way to compare to to see this visually is to look at videos from Asbury, then watch videos at Lee College when they're having their so-called, you know, revival, uh, and see how they are doing that. Or even, um, uh, BSSM, you know, Bethel Su- Supernatural School of Ministry, they claim to have a revival breakout and it will look very different, uh, than what you saw happening at Asbury, which I think is a great ex- a visual representation of these two different, you know, ways of, I guess this term revival that we're all trying to navigate through. So I think, I think that's a really good point.
0: One of the questions I think people are wondering, and I think we should try to address here is, uh, so Greg Locke, uh, uh, Todd Bentley, Christy Jope, they're all sort of proclaiming the wonder that's going on at the Asbury Revival, as well as Shane Claiborne. And so, you know, if you're listening, you're probably familiar with some of those folks. Greg Locke is a far to the right, uh, preacher has burned Andrew Seidel's book. Um, has uh, you know just done things that are are truly on the edges of uh, Christian nationalist practices, we'll say. But then Shane Claiborne is really sort of stylized as a kind of progressive evangelical, uh, and so there's a lot of folks who've emailed me and said, "How can both how how can how can on one hand Greg Locke and the other hand Shane Claiborne both be claiming the same revival and that God is doing something?" Incredible in the same space. So I don't know if who wants to give this a shot first, but I do think we should try to figure that out because I think it's confusing to people.
1: Brad, can I just applaud you on 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 saying that about Greg Locke and like the most like. Kind way because man you really did him a solid with that description of on the fringes of christian nationalism uh so i I just want to applaud you for that great job (laughs) just
0: just just a plug we did we did a whole episode like i had somebody who went undercover at greg Locke's book burning (laughs) um so if you want to listen to that it is out there and uh it's you know there's i it's the language is a little more blunt in that one but um anyway all right so you know somebody take take the floor here how can how can we have progressive evangelicals uh and uh Greg Locke claiming this to be a, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Hmm.
3: You know, one one thing that I've been thinking about, and I'd love to hear what y'all think, is just that revivalism is just such a core component of American Protestantism. I mean, it goes back to the 18th century before there was a United States. There were people, Protestants in the United States reviving. Uh, I mean, what would become the United States reviving? So, I think you know one, one simple explanation is it's a practice that's really hard to kill. Even if people don't agree about its utility, like how it's being employed, I think they want, you know, one simple reason is they want to revive, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, such a thrilling part of, of, um, Protestant practice. And I mean, I read a really, um, kind of poignant essay essay written by Nadia Boltzweber about the Mm -hmm. Bible, uh, meeting and in it, you know, she was saying that she was surprised at her own response to it, that she, and I think some of it is the, the age of the practitioners, they're young. And I, I don't know about you all, but I mean, you, you brought up, um, Erica Ramirez's comments about this being Gen Z. And I think some of it is people thinking, I want those kids to, to make it, you know, (laughs) I, I, that kind of tone, from both, you know, like a- across the spectrum. Um, that's that's kind of how I interpret that. Uh, what do others think?
2: I mean, I, I think there's, um, as you're saying, Leah, the the roots of this revivalism, especially within the evangelical tradition, which I I would group kind of Pentecostals and Charismatics within that tradition. I mean, you go back as as Leah was saying, first Great Awakening. In the 1700s, second Great Awakening in the 1800s, Azusa Street revival and Pentecostalism, the Jesus movement in the 1970s. Right, you just have this this legacy of all of these revivals, and many evangelicals would kind of date their traditions or date their identities back to one of those revivals. Oh, I, I came out of this strand of evangelicalism, and so even left leaning evangelicals, um, and I don't say left evangelicals necessarily because, right, they're still conservative culturally, but left-leaning evangelicals, people who are relatively left-leaning within the evangelical spectrum, they they still, I think, hope that revival is going to um, validate their form of evangelicalism right the Holy Spirit is going to invigorate a form of evangelicalism that they believe is the true evangelicalism right and so for for people who think that we need to get away from the culture wars we need to get away from all, all the, this kind of loud Christian nationalism stuff and just get back to real piety, well, they they're thats what they're hoping to see come out of this thing for people who are hardcore Christian nationalist evangelicals. Well, maybe this will be finally be that third great awakening that will um, unleash the eschaton and bring about the return of Jesus and a billion soul harvest. Right. So everyone's kind of reading this like a Rorschach test and seeing in it what they want. But every because everyone universally values revival they they nobody is speaking against it other than these very cranky reformed people who just are angry about everything yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, okay. So out of this group, I'm the only person without a PhD. I have some college underneath my belt. So my experience is much more on the ground and much more on like that, just kind of like lay level perspective. But I have thought about this because you're right. I mean, Greg Locke and Shane Claiborne have both like stamped. Well, Greg Locke stopped talking about it uh, after he left. And I think it's because he wasn't platformed and able to make it about him, frankly. But the point is, is that, you know, Sean Foy has talked about it. Charlie Kirk tweeted about it. I've talked about it. Shane Claiborne's talked about it. And so, yes, there's definitely this perspective of like, huh, why are we all kind of like, you know, looking at this? I think one of the maybe just even more pop level, um, you know, perspectives is that people who identify as Christian use a lot of the same language and still have, have these moments of like, yeah, like, you know, music can help me encounter the, the, the divine. And maybe I just miss being around a lot of people. And if this thing is happening uh, where it seems like people are being genuine and are like, listen, we're not trying to make this up. I just think something special is happening here. I think that. Both a Greg Locke and a Shane Claiborne can both say, "Oh, look, God is moving." But like you said, Matt, very different ideas of what that looks like fleshed out. I mean, ultimately, um, so I do think there's that layer, and I, I, I wonder. This is just speculation. I do wonder if, like you know, the lockdowns and just being so socially distant for so long, especially in church world and having well, evangelical church world having like this really. Um, just divisive moment in evangelicalism of like, of like a reckoning. I just wonder if that has played a role in this of like, I just miss these experiences. I just miss being the, I miss having the feeling of being a part of something bigger than myself. I miss the feeling of like, you know, different kinds of people attending something. I just, I just miss it. And so, okay, this is online. It went viral I want to experience it. And I think for a lot of evangelicals, they map on, you know, more mystical or spiritual languages, which is totally fine. But I do think there could be a layer of that as well, even though, again, a lot of the language is similar with very different outcomes, I think, ultimately.
0: Well, and I'll say, you know, and and I know a bunch of us here uh, teach young people, but as somebody, you know, I'm around Gen Z People a lot, and they—they. It's really hard to overestimate what the pandemic did to the the 19 year old that you're talking to. I mean, these are people who, their last two years of high school and their first year of college, or you know, their their whole like first part of their college experience was spent like in a room on Zoom, and they missed out on some like incredibly important social um, times and markers. And so, uh, I, I, you know, not to make this a sociological kind of analysis, but I do think it's fair to say that. all of us uh, really do uh, crave this kind of uh, sense of belonging and togetherness and collective effervescence and melting into a group. And a, and this happens when people go to raves. It happens when people go to festivals. It happens when people go to uh, all kinds of places where it feels as if your you're, like, uh, limited self is being kind of melted down into this uh, one big uh, kind of collective soul. So uh, I, I think that's worth, I appreciate you bringing it up, Tim. Um well, we, uh, we lost Matt. So maybe Matt, uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, Bye, he, Matt. <laughs> um, uh, he went to play beach volleyball and, uh, or something cause it's so warm. Um, I don't, in Baltimore. Yeah. Yes.
1: That's, yeah. that's what he we do in, in, in the Northeast, play beach volleyball.
3: I thought he was raptured.
1: Yeah. I it, <laughs> okay.
3: But <laughs> really quick before we go, one thing that I, I thought of, um, Tim, you were bringing up the critics that were there and I thought of how even the critics, I always look at, if you ha- you didn't really have a revival if you didn't have critics. I think you know, like that is a part of the thing. And I, I thought how festive the criticisms felt to me. It was like everyone was kind of enjoying themselves, yeah. even if they we're adjudicating it and coming up empty. But I wasn't there uh, personally. What did you What did you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there. It- Yes, I mean it was evident that you know I think almost like deep down it was like ooh something we all kind of agree on I want to talk about like as an evangelical culture because we're fighting all the time about Christian nationalism and we're always arguing on Twitter Uh, but I think Matt put it well there are always going to be like these like you know reformed just cranky people who will find fault in everything Um, and and I think even when I went down there I listen I'm I'm, people know our work we're very skeptical we we are very much like I don't trust this when it comes to these kinds of things Uh, but you know it was. I don't want to use the word healing. It was just, it was unique to be back in that space and just kind of have have a different lens of like, oh, you know, I was that person being prayed over like 15 years ago. I was that person praying over people 15 years ago. So I know what I needed back then. So I want to hold space for that for these students because they, they, this is, this could be healing for them. Uh, and also it's kind of nice to be in a room with people who are singing songs that maybe I find problematic now personally, but I still appreciate the beauty of what they invoke. So that's why I use the word complicated, even for me personally, it was just a very complicated experience. But Leah, can I ask you one question before we, we, we sign off? I know we, we have to jet. Can I ask you one more question? I'm kind of curious, from your vantage point as a you know historian, what is the outcome of of revival? Because I I think I get my critique online was I'm glad this is happening, but if we're if the if if this Jesus is not moving us to care about the marginalized among us afterwards, and we're just high fiving each other because we had this you know 125 hour long worship service, is that the point? And I the reason why I say that is because is because I think about and tell me if I'm wrong, I really am not the expert here, but Charles Finney, like that kind of revival, I think there was like an abolitionist vibe to some of that stuff. It was kind of, there was like a social aspect of like, our faith compels us to do these revivals, but hopefully to hope you know, change the social good. Is there a link there? And how do you think about that now in 2023?
3: Wow, that's such a great question. And I think this is going to be such an annoying answer as a historian. But I got to say, I think, you know, we'll just have to wait and see, you know, what the outcome is of, of something like this. But you're right. I mean, I think, you know, revival has frequently, because it's such a powerful moment, it's frequently been used to incite uh, this worldly action um it, i mean in fact we saw that we we're seeing that right now with the reawaken tour you know they're they're like garnering political action yes. but there are a lot of other versions of that over time you brought up abolitionism i think um teetotaling and then prohibition was another like big political um push that was uh, revivalism was was like an important tool for using that so i think you know time will tell and then, uh, you know, I, I, it, it's never surprising to me to see it used in that way, because I mean, if you look at our American political, like theater, that is revivalism just known, mm. you know, called something else. I think, you know, this is just my own bias, but I think probably the most skilled public forms of rhetoric are preaching, you know, preachers, uh, are the best, you know, so like politicians mm. like aim for that, you know, I yeah. think that. Um. So, so huh. yeah, I, I, I don't have a really good answer in terms of you know what will happen because it's like I guess we'll have to wait twenty or thirty years to see. Was there something you that know? Long?
1: Oh, I'll be in a nursing yeah. home by then. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I need quicker answers than that. <laughs> oh, <my girl.
0: laughs> well, you're younger than me, so if you're going to be in a nursing home, um, good lord. Okay. <laughs> Um, I guess this is my last episode of Straight White American Jesus, everyone, and it's been a good ride. Uh, all right, gonna go and check out retirement homes. Um, so we should run. I like to note that Matt ran, Matt dropped off the call as soon as he made that comment about cranky reformed people. Um, so. <laughs> We need we need to we need to go because I'm already getting dozens of emails from Michigan uh, and uh, people are unhappy. So I'm going to have to go address that. So thank you very much to both of you for saying that. Um, All right. So, uh, Dr. Leah Payne, where can people find you?
3: They can find me at Dr. Leah Payne on uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever wherever social media finds you. Um, and if you want, if you want to think about religion and pop culture, I co-host, um, a podcast called weird religion. So if you want to hang out with us, find us there. Thanks.
0: Highly recommend. And a book coming soon on contemporary Christian music, which is going to be a blockbuster. And, uh, uh, we're going to have to get you protection from the paparazzi. Like we have Matt, um, (laughs) so Matt, Matt, where can people find you? I'm at Taylor Matthew D on Twitter.
2: And you can also what I work at the Institute for Islamic Christian and Jewish Studies in Baltimore. We do a lot of free programs around interreligious dialogue and religious learning. I'm going to be teaching a three-part course on messianic Judaism and Christian Zionism in May. So you can sign up for those things at iCJS.org.
0: That's incredible stuff. Um well Tim, I know the people know where to find you, but what do you want to tell us before we go?
1: No, thanks for having me. And thank you, Leah and Matt, for making time. And yeah, you can find us anywhere that says the New Evangelicals. That's us. Yeah, we're, uh,
0: for for me, we're at Straight White JC. I'm at Bradley Onishi. And uh, we are here, uh, Straight White American Jesus, three times a week. So check it out. Otherwise, we'll just say thanks to everyone for this really fun group call. And it's, it's really, it is just really helpful to think about all these things. Um, so- Until next time, uh, we'll catch you later and it's three o'clock. So I'm going to go get my dinner and watch Golden Girls. Okay, so we'll talk (laughs) to you all later. All right.